Larry Schantz is coming up. Now, there was a time when Larry needed no introduction. Um, but for those who are newer to our community, uh, we wanted to make sure we introduced Larry. And I get to do this, which I'm, I feel really privileged to do. So Larry uh, was our lead pastor here at Bethany for 43 years previous to Andrew. And yeah, that deserves a round of applause. Put up with Tom Francie that whole time, I think. Yeah. We all have a cross to That's there. right. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, as a church, we are still benefiting from Larry and Sharon, and uh, they're not the only ones, but uh, we're highlighting them today, who, who continue to serve here in our community. And we have the privilege of having Larry share and serve us today. So thank you, Larry. Thank you. Great to be with you. It really is. I am so thankful that I am able to make this my church home. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's one of the amazing things about that whole transition is I got to stay and I'd be lost without you. <laughs> I also want to say uh, ah, something about compassion. It is one of the neatest ministries. We have sponsored two kids in El Salvador. One graduated uh, on the mission trips to El Salvador. We got to visit them and it's amazing the difference that compassion makes. And the thing I love about compassion is they do it all through the local church. And that makes a huge difference. Anyway, um, welcome to those who are watching online. Good to have you with us. Andrew's just finished a series on the art of belonging. And so I thought I would piggyback on, on that and uh, talk about longing for home. Uh, a guy by the name of George Carlin, he was a stand-up comedian, did an analogy about the difference between football and baseball. We're into uh, the World Series right now. My team's been losing. Um, <laughs> and we're into football. Uh, but the two sports are incredibly different. Football tends to be much more martial, and baseball tends to be much more genteel. And it's going to get us into our topic this morning. So uh, what's the difference between baseball and football? Uh, Carlin says football is played on a gridiron. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Where baseball is played in a park. That's kind of a fun place to go. Football players wear helmets. Baseball players wear caps. In football, there's a specialist who comes in to kick something. In baseball, there's a specialist who comes in to relieve someone. Football has a two-minute warning. Baseball has the seventh-inning stretch. Football has sudden death if it's tied. That sounds kind of ominous. Baseball gets extra innings. Not just innings, but extra innings. In football, a runner will give you the stiff arm. In baseball, the runner gets the slide. It's kind of fun. But the biggest difference is that in football, the object is military. In football, the battle is fought in the trenches. The field general, the quarterback, seeks to evade the blitz, soften up the enemy line with a pounding ground attack and an aerial bombardment. He will mix bullet passes with the occasional going for the bomb in order to penetrate the enemy defenses and reach the end zone. Baseball is so different. The object in baseball is simply to get home. To hear the umpire say, safe at home. There's nothing like those words. <laughs> I, 
I don't think there's any word in the English language that evades more thought and is as powerful as just that one little word, home. It can fill your heart. It can make you smile. It can make you cry. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how independent you may be. I don't care how much you have achieved. That little word touches the absolute deepest place in the human heart, the word home. You know, we just had Thanksgiving a few weeks ago, and many of us went home to celebrate Thanksgiving. We got together on my brother's farm. There were over 40 of us. <laughs> and we all ate in the same old farmhouse that was part of my ancestors. It's been in our family now for over 150 years. We got to pick pumpkins and, and just elicited so many memories. And I'm so glad that my kids and my grandkids can be part of that whole story. But sometimes when we get together as a family, it's not all that great. I heard of somebody who went home for Thanksgiving and he came back and booked a two-hour appointment with his therapist. <laughs> Sometimes the home that we long for and the home that we have is very different. There's a gap. And sometimes the gap can be very big and very painful. There's so much interesting language around homes. We talk about broken homes, homes that get broken because there's a longing for home inside of us that no home in this world can satisfy. And the Bible has a lot to say about homes and our longing for it. So today, today we're going to talk about why we long so much for home. What is it about that word that touches us so deeply and elicits so many emotions? Today I want to talk about three critical movements in the history of the home and the family that we find in the scripture. The first is that God ordained the family from the very beginning. Secondly, humans rebel against God's plan for harmony. And third, Jesus redefines family by creating a brand new family. So in Genesis chapter 2, we read about the fact that it was God that ordained the family. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helpmate suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib and took her out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of the man. <laughs> And that is why a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We can never forget that God ordained the family. It was his plan from the very beginning. It is not a human invention. So I want you to think about that with me. Think about what went on in the heart of God before he established the family. So I want to do a little exercise in imagination with you this morning. I imagine that one day God is there, and he got his angels together, and he said, I got an idea. I'm going to create the family. One of the angels piped up, family? What's that? God said, I'm really excited about this idea. Of course, I'm excited about all my ideas. One of the great things about being God is you never have a bad idea. This one is really unique, though. 
The family is going to be the way that I connect people together, just kind of bind them together in love. And this is how it's going to work. Adult people, grown-up people, will sign up to take care of those little strangers that invade their homes. One of the angels pipes up, what are the perks? Are they going to be paid? God says, no, actually, that little stranger is going to cost them a ton of money. Not only that, that little stranger won't even be able to talk for the first couple years. It would just cry and scream, and then you're going to have to guess what's wrong. It will make you lose all kinds of sleep. It will make incredible messes all the time that you're going to have to clean up. That little thing will be utterly vulnerable. And you're going to have to watch that kid 24-7. Then when it's about two years old, that little stranger is going to be able to say words like no and mine, and it's going to throw temper tantrums. (laughs) And then I'm also thinking about inventing puberty. I'm not sure yet what that's going to be, but all these hormones are going to start coming out, and it's going to cause them to do crazy things. And they're going to get pimples, and their voices are going to crack, but they'll manage, and, and then they'll grow, and just about the time that they're mature and interesting and responsible and able to contribute something back to you, they move away. <laughs> and they start the cycle all over again. <laughs> so what do you think of my great idea? The angels kind of shuffle around and look down at their feet. Who's going to tell them? I don't want to tell them. Lord, nobody's going to fall for that. Who would ever sign up to do that? That would be idiotic. And this is where God gets really excited. This is, I think, the really cool part of the story. They won't even know why they sign up. They just look at that little body. They look down at those little hands and those little feet, and they think that little stranger is so incredibly beautiful, even though every baby kind of looks like the other baby. And even though all babies kind of look like Winston Churchill. They'll think that this baby is especially beautiful. And then one day that little stranger will smile just at them, and they'll think that they won the lottery. They won't have words to describe their joy. And then one day that little stranger will say, Dada and Mama. They always say Dada first because daddies are so self-sacrificial and so nurturing and so noble, and oh, how I love them. But moms are important too. So it will say, Dada and Mama, and then one of those day, those little arms and hands will open up, and they'll reach up, and they'll wrap them around your neck, and you'll know why God created arms and hands. But it's really all about this in a sneaky kind of way. Do you know what this is all about? Grace. Grace is at the very core, fundamental to the entire universe. Grace is fundamental to who God is. Now, sometimes when we think of grace, we think of the forgiveness of sins. And of course, grace does include the forgiveness of sins. But grace is way bigger than that. God was gracious way before anyone ever sinned. Grace just refers to the gratuitous goodness, the generosity, the self-giving love of God. And that's why he created the family. 
And children, the new generation, will learn that they are loved and prized. And before long, and before they've ever done a single thing to earn it or deserve it, then grown-ups, God says parents, the old generation will learn that when they give, they receive. And the more they give, the more they receive back. And when they give the most, they receive the most. And they will learn that giving is the best. They will learn about my kingdom. That's going to be the beauty of the generations together. It will be grace expressed, grace incarnate. And then one day, I will let them know that I am your father and you are my daughter and you are my son. And they will get it and they will be undone. It will just mess them up. They'll be wrecked. They'll be overwhelmed. Because I've created the family. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And in the Greek language that Paul is using to write this letter, the word for father and family are very closely connected. So that part of what he's referring to. But beyond that, there's a whole idea of the family, the character, the name of the family is the expression of the character, the love, the grace of God. It's a reflection of who our God is. And that's why Paul goes on in that same chapter of Ephesians 3 to talk about uh, being rooted and established in love. And that's what families do. They have the power together with all God's people. All this great family to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for you and for all of us. All you've ever wanted. And that's the first movement of the family. And if you want to know why family goes deep to the heart of every person here, no matter how old you are, why it evokes and touches longings and hopes and dreams inside all of us that no other word does, this is where you start. The family is God's idea, and it's meant to express, to mirror the ultimate spirituality, the ultimate truth of the universe. The family is, some not, is not some arbitrary cultural artifact that can come and go. The family is not just some biological mechanism that happens to be handy way to pass on DNA to the next generation. It's a divinely ordained idea. God created the family to be a reflection of his character and the manifestation of his kingdom and the vehicle of grace. That's the family. There's never been an idea like it. It's an incredible moment. But then comes chapter 2, our 3 of Genesis, the second movement, the second critical movement of the history of the family. And this isn't so good. And we come upon it in chapter 3 of Genesis. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. First time they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what did the man say? Yes, I did. It was my responsibility. I'm sorry. Put the heat on me. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> the man said, it was the woman. The one that you put here with me. 
The only other human being in the world, and the man blames her, and notice he doesn't even call her by his name. He doesn't call her Eve. He says, it's the woman. That's what families do when things are going south. You know what that son of yours did today? You know what your mother did? You ever hear that? Those are fighting words. There's a, a blame that's going on. It's the woman, God, that you gave me. She gave me the fruit. What was I to do? Can you imagine later when Adam and Eve were debriefing this moment? Do you think that Eve came to Adam and said, Adam, I just want you to know I'm really glad that you took up for your courage in pointing out to God that it was my fault, that I gave you the fruit. Thank you so much for letting God know that. No. Blame and deceit and cowardice and denial and unresolved conflict, that's all starting here. And we see that in our families. I see it in mine. This is where it started. And there's far-reaching ramifications of the fall of man that we read as you go through the rest of Genesis chapter 3. And let me just summarize it. What are the far-reaching ramifications of the fall? First of all, man is out of harmony with God. Now he hides himself from God before he was in fellowship. He's out of harmony with creation. Now there's thistles and thorns, and he has to labor by the sweat of his brow. And, there, and, and there's so many things in creation that go against what God wanted it to be. Man is out of harmony with each other. There's psychological disharmony. Adam and Eve blame each other. Man is also out of harmony with himself. There's psychological disharmony because now he cut, he's ashamed. He, he covers himself up. And finally, there's the ultimate penalty is death, which God, which now enters God's creation. And they're banished from the garden and they're not allowed to eat of the tree of life. And we don't read of the tree of life again until we come to the, uh, the book of Revelation. And when man is redeemed, from his fallen state, he's then able to eat of the tree of life. But as Paul said in Romans 8, all creation groans to be delivered from the oppression of the curse of sin. And then if you read the book of Genesis, one of the things that is going to strike you when you read it, it's the story of families. It's not what you'd expect. It's not the story of great nations or armies or organizations. It's, it's families. It's played out in that sphere. Not on battlefields or, or courtyards or palaces. It's played out in the home. The story of families. Not just families, but now deeply dysfunctional families. The first family we come in contact with is uh, Cain and Abel. Two brothers who are incredibly jealous, Cain, of his brother. You talk about sibling rivalry. He, he kills them. And then there's a murderer called Lamech who comes along and introduces polygamy to the human race. And then one of the heroes of Genesis is Noah, the guy that built the ark, saved his family. But he gets drunk after the flood. And when his son sees him disrobe, he pronounces a formal curse on that son. Noah, the most righteous person in his generation, Kind of sets the bar low. And then there's Abraham. God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant. 
and says, Abram, through you, I'm going to bless you, and through your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed, Abraham. And then Abraham, in a famine, goes down to Egypt, and the Pharaoh notices how beautiful his wife, Sarah, is, and she's fair, and, and what does Abram do? He, he says, oh, that's not my wife, that's my sister. He's afraid that a powerful man like the Pharaoh is going to want his wife for his harem. And then uh, when they don't have the child that God promises them, they take things into their own hands. And, and Abraham lies with his maidservant, Hagar. And that produces a son. Of course, two women don't get along in the kitchen very well. And eventually, Sarah and Abraham abandon their son and the son's mother. And then you have Lot. You talk about a dysfunctional family. I won't even go into that. And then he, Abraham's son of promise, Isaac and his wife, spend their lives playing favorites with their two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives the dad, cheats his brother out of his birthright. And his brother ends up hating him so much he wants to kill him. And Jacob has to run for his life to another land. And he ends up marrying two women. And he has children from both of those women as well as their servants. And he favors one of those sons among all the other 12 sons that he, 11 sons that he has. And that favored son is Joseph. And he buys him this coat of many colors. And the brothers are so angry they just can't stand it. They're so jealous of him. And they end up selling him as a slave into Egypt and lying about it and covering it up for years and years and years. Anybody feel better about your family now? <laughs> This is the kind of stuff that Dr. Phil has on his show in the afternoon. <laughs> and this is just the first book of the Bible. The writer to Genesis doesn't try to cover this up because, you see, there's never been a golden age of the family because families are made up of little sinners who become big sinners. That's what they are. One other thing that's important to notice, it's through these strange, dysfunctional messed up wackadoo families that God is present and working to keep the dream of redemption alive. It's with those families that are laid open before us in all their humanity and brokenness. And one of my life verses is found in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph confronts his brothers after dad has died. And they think, uh, the brothers think that Joseph is now going to uh, expel his, his revenge on them. And Joseph says... You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What a great moment. I love the genealogy that, of Jesus that we find in Matthew's gospel. You talk about messed up families. You see, Jewish genealogies usually don't have women. But in the genealogy of Jesus, there's five women. And what five women does God choose to be in Jesus' genealogy? The first is Tamar. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. And because Judah doesn't provide a husband for her after her husband dies, she deceives Jacob and lies with him and produces an offspring. And that offspring is part of Jesus' genealogy. And then we have Rahab. <laughs> Rahab is a prostitute living in the city wall of Jericho. And she helps the Israelites, and, and she converts and becomes an Israelite, and she produces offspring that is in the genealogy of Jesus. And the next one is, is Ruth. Ruth isn't even an Israelite. 
Israelites are not supposed to marry foreign woman. She's a Moabite. And she's found in the genealogy of Jesus. And the next one is Bathsheba. Bathsheba's the one who had that affair with Solomon. And out of that affair comes a child. Solomon, David, and they produce Solomon. And out of that becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus. Can you believe it? What's God trying to tell us? He's a master at redeeming brokenness. The church is not a place for successful, together, healthy people to come together and smugly congratulate themselves on how great they are. No, it's a place for people and families that are broken and marred by sin to come and confess our need for God, to do what only God can do and turn our families over to him because we are not God and you are not God. And our family's not God and we can't do it without him. A Sunday school teacher was teaching her class of grief, uh, five and six-year-old kids the story of creation in Genesis. She asked one of the little kids, Michael, to stand on a ladder, and he was supposed to shine the flashlight down at just the right time and say, let there be light. He was to play the role of God, and she was giving other roles to the kids in the class, and she felt a tug on her clothes, and it was Michael, and he said, Mrs. Berg, could you get somebody else to play my role? I don't feel very much like God today. <laughs> and I think that wouldn't be a bad thing for every one of us to admit. God is God, and I'm not. Maybe you want to turn to the person beside you and say that. God is God, and I am not God. How desperately we need to come to that reality. So it's kind of a spiritual discipline this morning, an act of confession. I want to name the reality of family life to us as honestly as Genesis does for our families here today. Because we come to church and we may wear nice clothes and we may drive nice cars and we may look like we have it all together. But we don't. So I want to do something kind of unusual. I want to uh, name real family problems and then ask if you've ever been part of a family that has ever wrestled with any of these problems. And if one of those problems that I'm going to name has affected you or your parents or your children, at the end, I'm going to ask for all of us for whom this is true to stand up. Okay? You're excited about this, I know. Are you looking forward to this? Here they are. If you've ever been part of a family where there are children who've wrestled with spiritual doubts, who've wrestled with insecurity and pure rejection and low self-esteem, or if you've ever been part of a family where there's been drinking problems, maybe underage drinking or experimentation with drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage or unwanted pregnancy or maybe even an abortion or someone experiencing confusion and anguish and torment over sexual orientation issues. Or have you ever been part of a family where anger, angry, bitter words are spoken on a regular basis through clenched teeth where mom and dad are both felt like they were a vocational failure or a financial failure. Been part of a family where there's kids who feel like a failure because of their grades, or kids who get good grades, but they're plagued by anxiety or depression or stress, or the secret they are, that they are regularly cheating to bring home those good grades. 
been part of a family where people come to church but have a spouse who stays at home and they wonder if they're really welcome here. Or a family where there's a married couple who comes and sits together and looks like they have it all together but they have had no intimacy for years and nobody knows. Or people who've been through the pain of divorce. Or people who have never married and wonder if they really belong here or if this is one of those places where you have to be married to be really on the inside. Our families that have been rocked by sexual unfaithfulness, our emotional affairs, and even betrayal. Our families when parents feel like a failure because they have a son or daughter who's far from God and now is far from them. Are there sons and daughters who feel like a disappointment because they have a parent they could never please no matter what they did? It was never enough. Our childless person who bear, or hears parents complaining all the time about their kids and parenting and wonders why God keeps breaking their hearts by not giving them a little life that they could treasure. We are going to be family together. We're going to have to dethrone the idol of pride and image and appearance we just got to dethrone it. We've got to name our brokenness. So today, if you or your parents or your children have been hurt by any of those problems, I'm going to ask you to be brave enough just to stand where you are right now. Would you do that for me? Uh, yeah. Just stay standing for a moment. Look around. I'm standing too. <laughs> And I want to ask you to remember this picture when we gather together in other places. Just look around. Remember this moment. And I just want to say a word to everyone who is standing. If you've messed up, if you've fouled up, if you feel like you're a failure, this is your place to be. This is where you belong. Welcome home. Okay, you can sit down now. Thank you. And for those of you who didn't stand... No. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> you see, it's pretty much all of us. And it leads us to the third moment of the family. The third great moment. In the third great moment, there's hope. There's redemption. It's the third critical movement in the history of the family. Because a man by the name of Jesus, a God-man comes. There's never been anyone like him. He's divine fully, and he's human fully. And he gives hope. It's very interesting. Jesus came from a family. He, he didn't have an earthly father. A virgin conceived and gave birth to a son, and his name was Emmanuel, God with us. But he had a family. There were other brothers and sisters who came after him. And they had issues like any other family. <laughs> and uh, he's the only one who's perfect. Can you imagine having a perfect brother? <laughs> it would create some problems. And so there's some stuff going on here. And at the age of 33, 30, pardon me, Jesus heads out on his earthly ministry. He's been part of a family and siblings and parents and all the struggles that families have, and they're looking at him, and what's he doing? He's now hanging out with sinners. 
and he's offending the religious leaders of the day. And the respectable people don't like it, and they don't like it either. It's not reflecting well on them. So there's a very interesting place in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 3, verse 23. Look at what it says. When Jesus' family heard about this, uh, what, what do they hear about? They, they're hearing about his public ministry. And so what do they do? They come to take charge of him. And what were they saying? He's out of his mind. This is Jesus. He's out of his mind. You think that played well? Maybe they were concerned for his safety. I don't think so much. I think they were more concerned about their family's reputation. It was going to get trashed. People were looking at them kind of weird because of what Jesus was doing and the people he was offending. So they're going to do this big intervention. And literally, they're going to pull him out against his will. So the people <laughs> tell Jesus, uh, your mother and brothers have arrived. Standing outside, they uh, sent someone to call him in. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are here looking for you. Notice Jesus' response. Who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. What a response. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is redefining family. This is the third critical moment in the history of the family. He's starting a brand new family. He's saying all human beings who love God and anyone who wants to be can be part of this family. And that means they will become brothers and sisters with each other and they will be committed to each other in love. Now, it doesn't mean that you give up on your family because Jesus still cared about his mother. We see that at the cross in John chapter 16, verses 26 and 27, when he commissions John, the disciple, to take care of his mother. But he says there's going to be a new kind of family. And what are the characteristics of this new family that Jesus is creating? He says in John 15, 12, my command is simply this, that you love each other as I have loved you. In John 17, 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you love them, even as you have loved me. Wow. And this is not just true spirit, uh, spiritually. It's also true emotionally. It's true relationally. It's true psychologically. This is a brand new reality. There's never been a family like this before that transcends status and gender and background and nationality and age and generation and language and skin color and culture. And it happened. I love the description of the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Listen to what he says. They devoted, the early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
And everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to everyone in need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And they praised God and they enjoyed the favor of the people. And their number increased. Wouldn't you love to be part of a group like that? We are the family of God. The family that grew and continued to change the world and continued to change everything. Paul describes it in Galatians 3.26. So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female. What? You are all one in Christ. You are all children of God. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.8. And now this word to all of you, you should be like one big happy family full of sympathy toward each other, loving each other with tender hearts and with humble minds. The third movement is the church, the family of God that will continue to grow and continue to impact this world. In fact, I love what Jesus says on the last day of his earthly ministry when he met the disciples in the upper room. Not only is this an earthly family, it goes be, it transcends this present age. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. Does that sound like a home? If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm certainly going to come back and take you to be with me also so that you can be where I am. And that's why we get to eat of the tree of life in the book of Revelation. And there's no more pain. There's no more aging. There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more disease. And we live forever is God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord God, thank you so much for establishing the family. Thank you for the, the family of God, that we can be sons and daughters. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to know the reality of your love. We want to know how wide and deep and long and high is the love of Christ. I pray especially for those who come today with brokenness in their homes. Lord, may you heal that brokenness. And may they see and understand your plan of redemption. May you wrap your arms around them and tell them how much you love them and that you will never let go of them. I thank you in your name. Amen. In closing, I'm going to ask you to stand together with me. My prayer is a prayer of invitation that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 11. I love these two verses, or three verses. Matthew 11, 28. It is so powerful. It is so profound with Jesus says, as he invites people to come to him, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you take your, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will truly find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May you come to Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless.